0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. You are listening to Rhea McGuire and today I have Amit Katawala with me. Hello. I suppose, as always, the first question I will ask you is, who who are you? What is your background?
1: Sure. Um. So I'm a science, sport and technology journalist uh, based in the UK. I am a senior editor at Wired Magazine, where I edit the culture section of the website and I also edit the front section of the actual very quaint physical print magazine um, before that I wrote about uh, science uh, and sport for a bunch of different titles you know moving from kind of sports interviews through to sports science stories and then more into kind of harder science stories and now I tend to cover things that are at the overlap between science and culture so that might be things like you know the science behind movie production or the psychology of human behavior during a, a global pandemic.
0: So recently you wrote a book, and we'll get into that. Um kind of want to know, was there like a logical process from what you do to to writing the book?
1: Yeah, so the book is obviously about, um, as we'll discuss, it's about quantum computing, which isn't really like a field that I knew a huge amount about. Um, one of the things I like writing a lot of is these long-form sort of narrative features, magazine-length features of four or 5,000 words, and I tend to be quite a generalist in those areas, so I've written about... Elon Musk, I've written about uh, the annihilation of insects and and basically how we track insects using weather radar to make sure they don't go extinct. Um, I've written about batteries and mysterious planets. And in September 2019, uh, I started working on a short magazine piece about 5,000 words about quantum computing. So that was published in um, early last year, early 2020. And then around the same time, Wired, which is the magazine that I work for, were launching this series of short books. Um, I think a couple of my colleagues have been on this podcast previously talking about their entries. So we've done titles on the future of medicine, on cryptocurrency, on AI. And one of the topics that people are really interested in is quantum computing. And I'd obviously just written this kind of 5,000-word piece about it. And I knew a lot more about it that didn't fit in the piece. Um, So it kind of felt like a natural jumping-off point to then dive into it in a bit more detail, a slightly longer longer length.
0: The book you wrote is Quantum Computing and How It Can Change the World. Do you kind of want to expand on what the book is about and kind of, as you said, it wasn't really a field that you were kind of used to writing about. So what did inspire you to write about it?
1: Yeah, so it's, I mean, it is a really fascinating topic. So quantum computing is essentially, it's a new form of computing that promises to be exponentially quicker for certain types of problems so it could have really really important applications in physics and biology uh maths uh cyber all this stuff yeah so that, the book kind of basically explains what quantum computing is it's quite a complicated thing to kind of get your head around so there's a lot of um groundwork that you kind of have to explain in order to start talking about it in a coherent way so the book explains all that and then it basically looks at some other potential Implications and applications of the technology, and also looks at some of the hurdles that the technology will need to overcome if it's going to become a real thing. Quantum is kind of in this weird space where half the people that work in it are skeptical that it's ever actually going to be practically useful, and then the other half of people are, you know, starting companies and raising money and building stuff. So even though it's not necessarily definitely going to be possible to build quantum computers that can do the things that all the people that are hyping it up say that say it's gonna be able to do. It's kind of in probably in the place maybe AI was about fifteen or twenty years ago where it was more theoretical than practical.
0: How are you feeling about the book being published?
1: Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. It's um it's always nice to see something that you've worked on for ages actually finally come out. And the book publishing industry moves so slowly that, you know, by the time you Actually, get a physical copy of the book in your hand. You've almost forgotten what's in it, so um, I've had to kind of reread and revise what I've written to do all these interviews that I'm doing around the launch. But you know, it's really really exciting, and um, you know, I'd obviously love to, um, you know, I'd love if people were able to go out and peruse bookshops as they would be be able to normally. Obviously, bookshops are open again, but I suspect that they're not. Uh, they're not up, up. They're not high on people's priority list at the moment of places to go to, which is a shame um but um when I wrote my first book I was very much uh I would just go into bookshops just to like stare at it just because of the sort of novelty of seeing your you know something you've written on the shelves of like Waterstones or things like that it's um it's always nice
0: where and then with the books, like where are your like sources from and like how do you ensure that you're not like your own filter bubble of information you know
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think for something like this, because it's so complicated and because it's so technical and because you want to make sure that you don't misunderstand things and like I'm not a physicist, like I've got a kind of roughly scientific background. I I studied psychology at university, which um, most scientists will tell you is not really a real science, even though psychology kind of desperately wants to be a science. So I'm not not coming at this from a, a computer science or a physics background. So my sources were basically people that were experts and a lot of experts gave up loads of time to just talk me very patiently through what was going on in the field and you know i sent it to a bunch of people before it was published so they could check stuff and make sure i hadn't made any stupid mistakes what i was trying to do with the book was explain it in a way that's accessible to people like me right people that don't have a kind of maths or physics background so if you read a lot of other books about quantum computing there you know on page three or four you kind of get dropped into all these kind of mathematical formulas and and all this, these complicated diagrams and things like that. And I wanted to really avoid that and try and explain it as best I could in text without dumbing it down too much. I was also really lucky that I was able to, um, when I was reporting the magazine feature for Wired originally, back in um, early 2020, I was able to go to the States and visit some of the quantum computing labs. So in January 2020, I went to um, Santa Barbara in California to see Google who um, have built a quantum computing lab there and also to Seattle to visit Microsoft who've got their own quantum computing lab um, up there as well. So it was really, really good to um, be able to kind of go and see those things in person and speak to people in person and get a real understanding of the field and how it works. And obviously it was the last time I was able to travel for (laughs) about 14 months as well. So I do look look back on that trip with very fond memories.
0: What is quantum computing? And if there's any like just in a simple way, what is it, and like, how can it change the world?
1: Yeah, so the, the pro- one of the problems with it is that you can, you kind of have to resort these to these analogies, and the analogies are never quite perfect. So, if there are any experts listening, they're going to get very mad at me for for uh, explaining it in the way I'm about to explain it. Um, but essentially, imagine. So people think of quantum computers as kind of... They're not just a slightly faster version of a supercomputer, right? It's a it's a, a step up. It's an exponential step. It's like if you're playing chess, right, and you suddenly unlock a new completely new set of moves that didn't exist before. It's like, or it's like moving from 2D to 3D in chess. Like, you know, you're playing on a 2D surface and then suddenly you unlock something that lets you go in 3D and you can go under pieces and, you know, around the sides of the board or something like that. So that's the kind of analogy that I like to use. But essentially, quantum computing, um, to, to give a slightly more technical explanation, it takes advantage of the quantum properties of the universe. So for, for centuries, you know, from from Isaac Newton onwards, we thought of the universe as essentially like a giant pool table, right? So you'd have all these collisions between atoms, and if two atoms collided at a certain speed and angle, they would always bounce off each other in exactly the same way every single time, because of the formulas that Newton described about mass and energy and movement and friction and all this kind of stuff. But when you get down to a really small scale, the universe stops behaving like a pool table and you can't make predictions about the way um, objects are going to interact. And that's because of quantum mechanics. So at a really, really small scale, the universe stops obeying the laws of gravity of friction of uh, momentum and velocity. And it starts obeying all these different rules, which we call quantum mechanics and essentially quantum mechanics is it's probabilistic so it, it rather than you know a certain event leading to a certain outcome all the time it's like a certain event leads to a certain outcome some percentage of the time and at least a different outcome another percentage of the time and therefore it's uncertain right it's got this kind of degree of uncertainty baked into physics at this that's very small level so you know while at the level of atoms and above, there's a there's certainty baked into physics, right? You know that if you heat a liquid up 200 degrees, it's going to boil. But at a smaller scale, those rules don't apply. And it's more about probability. And you can only really make a guess as to what may happen. And there's all this uncertainty baked into it. So um, I like to think of it as, um, well, actually, let me say this other thing first, and I'll come back to that. So, So quantum mechanics takes advantage of these Uncertain of the uncertain nature of quantum mechanics, and uses that to speed up calculations. So, and again, again, this might be a little bit basic for some listeners, but but nor if you if you look at a normal computer. So just remember that what I just explained about quantum mechanics and quantum physics. It, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about computing for a bit, and I'm gonna try and attempt to bring the two together. Um, so, computing a normal computer uses um, bits, right, which are either zero or one, and it's this combinations of zeros and ones that code for, you know, everything from the Zoom call to Google Docs to Mario Kart. It's all made up of zeros and ones. And if you if you if you were to open up your computer and physically zoom in on the chips that make it up, what you would eventually get to is billions or you know trillions of little switches which can either be in the zero position or the one position, and that the literal physical switches um, that turn on and off to code for everything that your computer does but if you're trying to do something that involves uncertainty then it takes a load of extra switches to do this job right because because you know if a number if a number can be one or zero then you only need one of these switches to encode for it it can be one or zero it can either be on and off but if it could be either then you can then you suddenly need more switches and the more complexity you add, the more transistors you need, the more switches you need to do it, and eventually you just run out of physical space in the computer to do all this stuff. So with quantum, you can have these special kind of, I guess, switches called qubits. So they they can either be, rather than bits, they're called qubits, and they can be either one or zero, like they can be in a normal computer, or they can be somewhere in between. They can code for this idea of uncertainty. So the way I've explained it in the past is like if you flip a coin, a coin can either be heads or tails, right? Um, So that's like a normal computer, but a quantum computer can be heads or tails or the coin can be spinning on its side, right? So that gives you more options to play with and you can use that uncertainty to make better calculations or faster calculations about things in the universe that also have uncertainty built into them. If you're trying to make predictions about climate or about... The way molecules behave at a really, really small scale because they behave in uncertain ways. You need a computing system that also behaves in uncertain ways to accurately simulate them. So that's a very long and probably quite confusing answer. I, I explain it much more clearly in the book. Um, I promise. But essentially, yeah,
0: it's something that I wanted to ask because I feel like it's important to understand what what your what your book is about and. When it comes to quantum computing, what are the restrictions on it right now from a, from advancing from it becoming this kind of brand new? Well, actually, actually I, I might go
1: back if you don't mind me and just explain some of the potential uses. So, yeah, we, we talked about we said so we talked about uncertainty and how it can be used to encode for uncertainty. So that means, as I said, that you can do really accurate or you can do much faster simulations of things in the natural world. So, if you are trying to predict how two molecules will interact in a chemistry reaction. you can do that much faster with quantum computing whereas you know you might you might need like a supercomputer to do it currently or you might not even be able to do it at all. you'd be able to simulate it much more quickly and accurately with a quantum computer. So that opens up all sorts of potential technologies so it could be helped to it could be used to find new technologies for better batteries, it could be used to find new drugs, it could be used to accurately simulate the weather, it could be used for um, cyber security. So one of the things about quantum computing people worry about is that it could be used to crack encryption. So the encryption that protects WhatsApp messages could be cracked with a quantum computer much more easily than with the current, even the current best current computers. Um, so I just wanted to give people a flavor of like what the applications are of this technology and, and why people are so excited about it. Um, In terms of restrictions and what's preventing it from advancing right now, the main thing is that we can't really build them (laughs) at any sort of scale, um, which is a bit of a problem, I admit. So essentially the the coin flip, the spinning coin that I talked about, the qubit, there are a bunch of different ways of building it, but they essentially all involve holding very, very small particles in a really, really specific position and controlling them, which is really, really difficult. There are a bunch of different technologies. Some of them use like ions trapped in laser beams. Some of them use um, what's known as like a superconducting junction, essentially. But I don't. We don't need to get into that. But so if you picture, if you picture that spinning coin, right? You know, you can spin a coin, but eventually it's going to topple over, uh, and they're really fragile. And if a gust of wind comes into the window, it might blow the spinning coin over, and and um, like, you know, like a spinning top, right? If you're just spinning it on a flat surface, it will just eventually topple over, or if you nudge it with your hand, it will topple over and knock it out of its spin. And it's the same with these qubits, right? So they're really difficult to control and they're really difficult to build. And in order to build them, um, you have to get down to like really, really, really cold temperatures, like almost as cold as outer space or even colder. So if you go to um, Google's lab, they've got these massive kind of fridges called uh, distillation um, fridges, and they look like chandeliers. And basically what happens is they step down from room temperature. Each level gets colder and colder and colder and colder until at the bottom you get to this little space that's colder than space. And that's where they keep their quantum chip. That works okay when you're working with kind of 60 or 70 qubits or the kind of smaller scale experiments that Google are are doing at the moment. But if you actually need thousands or millions of these switches, like you do in a a laptop computer, then you're going to need a fridge that's the size of a football stadium. So the biggest problem uh restriction on quantum computing is we can't physically build them big enough to um actually do the things that we're going to want them to do. So that's why I start, you know when when, I, when people talk about it they and they get very excited about how it's going to change the world in the next 2 or 3 years it's not because we're we're miles away from actually being able to to build them to that scale. So the comparison that people make is if you think back at the history of uh of normal computing of of The current computers that we use now, if you if you go back to the 1940s and the 1950s, there were these like kind of room sized devices that were, you know, took up, they were made of vacuum tubes and wiring and they took up whole warehouses and massive spaces. And, you know, the computing power they had was basically what you can fit into like a pocket calculator today. Right. It was like the things that they they used at Bletchley Park to like crack the Enigma code. Huge things, actually not that much computing power. And that's where we're at with quantum computing right now. It's, it's in the stage of vacuum tubes and massive room sized devices doing not that much. And the challenge is to miniaturize it, to make it more reliable, to uh, reduce the error rate. And those are the hurdles that it needs to overcome to become a real, useful, practical thing.
0: So, really, kind of the, although it is exciting, but the excitement rather than it being now is more of a future excitement of what it will be in, say, 20 years or so, rather than a right-now excitement, although...
1: Yeah, so I will, I will to caveat that, though, that yes, a lot of it is hype, and, and there is a long way to go until it can fulfil its full potential, but what I will say is that it is having some of an impact already, because even the process of learning how to make these things um, is teaching us stuff about quantum mechanics, is teaching us stuff about computing, and it's helping people do things faster already. So, you know, people are already writing programs and algorithms for these computers even though they don't really exist yet in, in any sort of large-scale form and some of the algorithms and software that are writing can be used on current supercomputers so uh, there are a bunch of studies around biology and chemistry that kind of use quantum-inspired algorithms to do stuff faster today the, the, the kind of the process of building these things is actually already helping us speed up our current um, calculations so yeah there, there is um there is some stuff happening but a lot of it is hype and you know eventually we'll get there maybe but know it's not guaranteed
0: looking back on the book or even yeah even looking back on the book is there anything you would change with it or develop more into like a second edition about i
1: think it's yeah i think it's such a fast-moving field that you know i think and it's such it's quite a short book you know it's only what 20 25, words something like that so it, the aim of it was to really give us sort of quite a high level overview of the field and like a snapshot of where things are at at this moment in time you know i think if we were to do a second edition in a year's time or two years time things would have moved on again so much that you know who knows what the leading technology is going to be so um in the book i spoke to google who Whose, whose technology is the superconducting technology using those fridges that I talked about but that's not necessarily actually going to be the main technology that we use going forward so it could be that in two or three years time you talk to me and actually Google aren't the leaders anymore it's actually IBM or it's actually Amazon or a Chinese company like Tencent so you've got all these kind of huge companies investing in the space and we haven't yet really seen the kind of those things come to fruition yet so I are thinking, you know, if I was if I was to write this in five years time or two years time or three years time it would be a completely different book which is kind of interesting
0: and then did you write the book over covid um may i ask
1: yeah i did i wrote it um, so
0: um
1: so the original magazine feature was all mostly done before covid and then obviously i had to i built on that to, to write the book um yeah i wrote most of it probably like this time last year so like maybe like june july august last summer so yeah i mean it's kind of it's you know, it's, it was hard to be in lockdown and all that kind of stuff. But I'd kind of seen all the things that I needed to physically see already. So it didn't impact me too much from that perspective. And obviously I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Apart from sit at home, so from the perspective of getting the book done, uh, was it was probably a bit of a a bit of a blessing in disguise, which is an awful thing to say. But like you know, if you've got like a long project to do, then actually being legally unable to leave your home is quite a quite a bonus in a way.
0: And then I guess. One of the last questions I want to ask you is kind of like what are you what are you doing right now like what are you working on? I'm
1: still working for Wired kind of day-to-day doing um, culture stuff and, and magazine stuff that I talked about at the top of the episode I'm also writing another book um, for Harper which is about uh, lie detection uh, and the science of lie detection and true crime uh, so it's a, it's a true crime story set in 1920s San Francisco and 1930s Chicago about the development of the polygraph machine, um, which is a very very different uh, kind of topic to uh, light section, but uh, yeah, really fun. Um, yeah, really really been enjoying that. And and again, it's it's uh, been kind of weird to be sort of immersed in like nineteen twenty San Francisco when I'm actually just in a in a flat in London. But um, it's been an interesting experience, um, and that's coming out uh, next March. Um, so I'm just kind of putting the finishing touches to that at the moment.
0: Well so you're writing about the roaring 20s while being in the the
1: (laughs) yeah and and, again i think their version of the roaring 20s sounded a lot more fun than uh than ours uh yeah there's a lot more sort of gangland killings and things like that than 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 I've experienced during this one
0: yeah um and then lastly amit um where can people find you if they're interested in what you're saying like social media you know how can
1: people yeah yeah so i'm on twitter um at amit katwala um where i tend to tweet about um football mainly so if you you like football then please follow me and i occasionally tweet stuff that i've written as well um and then yeah i think i'm on i'm on linkedin and on instagram but i don't really use it but yeah twitter's the main one so if you want to keep up with what i'm working on i'm on i'm on twitter um we are publishing an extract from the quantum book on why.co.uk if you want to have a further taste of what it's all about then head there um and yeah no, thanks for having me it's been great talking
0: that's great is there anything more you'd like to add before we um say our good goodbyes
1: um so yeah obviously quantum computing um how it works and why it could change the world i'm just looking at just looking at the books to just double check what the titles how it work, quantum computing how it works and why it could change the world is out on thursday june the 17th uh available from all good bookstores and it's designed as a a primer so don't worry if the my attempts to explain it just now have scared you the the aim of the book is to kind of explain it in really really basic terms and give you like a grounding so that when it becomes the next big thing in three or four or five or ten years time you you know what it's all about and you can hold your own conversations about it and, and understand what's going on when uh, when quantum meeting takes over which it surely will
0: well thank you so much amit uh, i really have enjoyed our talk and you guys have been listening to the irish tech news podcast thank you thank you for listening to the latest irish tech news podcast check back every day for the latest episode you can follow us on